You ever think about if you were stranded on a, a desert island, you know, uh, what would, as a minimum, what would you want? Well, I think in terms of uh, reading material, we would want two books. And, and probably those two books would be enough. First of all, obviously the Bible. We're Christians, we're people of the book. We would want a Bible, especially if we're on a deserted island and really get discouraged you know, about that. We need some hope, right? But I would submit to you that this, the next book that you would want would be the Trinity Hymnal. Now, if it only had great hymns, that would be enough. But the Trinity Hymnal is, is, is loaded with lots of wonderful things in the back. And I don't think we uh, pay enough attention to that sometimes. And I would like for you to, if you would, if you can grab your hymnal or look on with somebody else, turn to page 851 of their, your Trinity Hymnal that's in front of you. And you will find in there the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is the basis of our Constitution, of uh, other Reformed churches uh, throughout the, uh, the world. Uh, the Westminster Divines gathered together during the English Civil War and sought to codify the belief system of uh, the British churches. And uh, it's just unsurpassed. And it really needs very little change. It was so well done, and uh, the geniuses that helped develop this did such a terrific summary uh, of this. Now, the downside of what you have in your Trinity Hymnal is they don't have verse references. If you look at the ARP manual, there's tons of verse references on there. All of this is based on Scripture. But I want to point this out because we're going to be looking at a passage today that speaks and shouts of the providence of God and the death of Jesus Christ but also the responsibility that sinful men had of killing Jesus Christ. And we sometimes get confused about how God is over all things and still allows sinful men to prevail in their endeavors and that sort of thing. Well, I'm, just, I'm not going to read the whole section here, but chapter 5 of Providence kind of addresses this issue. Number one here, God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern, govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Man, that'll preach, won't it? God, the God who created all of this universe, knows when a sparrow goes to the ground. Two, although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, yet by the same providence he ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. And then God in his ordained promise making use of means yet is free to work without, above, against them, and at his good pleasure. And I'll stop there. But the whole point there, if you can get that idea in your mind that God is the great first cause of absolutely everything to the point of the number of hairs on your head. But he works through second causes what you decide you're going to eat for breakfast. And, the, and he does that without doing damage to the will of the person doing the second cause. It's complicated, but it's marvelous. God gets all the glory, and he uses us to bring him that glory. And we're going to see the very same 
truth that's going to unfold today as we look at Judas's plot in Mark chapter 14, verses 10 through 21. God's going to get his glory through the death of his son, but he's going to use the black heart of Judas in order to accomplish that glory. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, in faith, we look to you as we look at this true historical account of the events of the last Passover, the first Lord's Supper, uh, the, the night in which you were betrayed. And I pray, God, that you would help us just to be in that upper room, to put ourselves in those sandals, to, to understand the nature of the relationships and what was going on there, and to be able to take the truths that we learn from this passage and apply it to our own life to the point that we just are in awe and wonder and madly in love with our God, our King, our Lord. Jesus went through all this for us. Let us not lose the, the, the sight of that truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Again, if you would, turn to Mark chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 21. Uh, and I'll break this passage down in three different ways. And you'll see your home group's helps um, outline might be helpful for you to kind of follow along with us. And uh, it'll be helpful if you attend a home group for us. To, the home group leaders tend to go through these uh, to kind of, uh, we want to, as the Puritans say, chew the cud spiritually, chew the cud on the truth that we've got. We want to kind of uh, uh, remind ourselves uh, constantly over the truths that we've heard. Uh, but also, this is, would be a terrific devotion for you to have with your family at home. Uh, so we're going to see here the plotting to betray Jesus in verses 10 through 11, the preparations for the Passover in verses 12 through 16, and the prediction of betrayal in verses 17 through uh, 21. Let's begin here with the plotting to betray Jesus in verses 10 through 11. Again, Jesus in Jerusalem, he's been on the Mount of Olives, he is... Uh, uh, there's the, the plot is thickening here. It's during the Passover season, so uh, the, the population of Israel has swelled beyond capacity with all of the, uh, with all of the pilgrims coming in to celebrate the Passover, uh, and it's just hours before his uh, death on the cross. God says, Mark writes, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray them. Uh, they... Uh, betray him to them, I'm sorry. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Now, it's interesting. Judas is the only disciple not from Galilee. Uh, Ascarath means a man of Kirioth, which is a little village about 25 mile, uh, mile, miles south of Jerusalem. That may or may not matter. It's just sort of an odd point here. So he would not have been, been known uh, by the people, the, the, the other disciples that grew up in Galilee and that kind of thing. He wasn't part of John's, the Baptist ministry or anything ahead, ahead of time. He joined uh, the group uh, uh, perhaps later on. So uh, his character would have been new to them. Uh, and uh, and it, it's interesting, with, 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 with all of those apostles, as wise as those men at least came to be, they didn't suspect Judas. Matter of fact, they trusted him with a money box. They thought his character was beyond reproach. And yet Jesus, who knows the hearts of men, said, many chapters ago, one, uh, one, uh, one of you is a devil. One of you is a devil. He knew Judas's heart and yet continued to express love and service towards him here. It says here that uh, Judas, uh, the man of Kirioth, uh, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him. And this is important, folks. This was not an impulsive sin. Jesus was, I mean, Judas wasn't tired. <laughs> he wasn't 
hangry. <laughs> he wasn't moody. He just didn't decide to go pout off and go do this sin like we often do. He had plotted this. He had schemed this. This has been growing in his mind. He's been trying to figure out opportunity. This is totally premeditated. He's been thinking about this for a while. And, uh, and at the same time, you've got, as we learned last week, the chief priests and the scribes are seeking to arrest Jesus through some sort of uh, intrigue or stratagem, and Judas is seeking the same thing. How can I hand Jesus over in some sort of secret way to be able to avoid the crowd here? So he goes to the priest. Notice this. It's not the priest that come to Judas and said, hey, we heard you're a scoundrel. <laughs> We'd like for you to betray you. He goes to the priests and said, I'll hand you over to them. I'll give them up for you. Been following this guy for years, ready to hand him over to you. Yeah, the interesting thing, we don't know why. We don't know why. Uh, we can assume money was involved. He handed Jesus over for 30 pieces of silver, according to the other, the, the synoptic gospels. Uh, he was greedy. Uh, uh, some have gone so far as to say, well, he was a zealot and he was impatient with Jesus' lack of political interest and uh, he wanted a rebellion. And, and, and that's often, they almost paint Judas in the modern movies and stuff sort of a martyr, sort of a misunderstood patriot, you know, this kind of thing. His heart was evil. His heart was evil. The synoptics say that the, the devil entered into Judas and he did this. Mark doesn't blame anything on the devil. He is pointing his whole finger here uh, at Jesus at Judas and then notice this that the response of of the Sanhedrin now remember who they are they are the religious leaders of of Israel they should have been the most sterling character the most uh, uh, understanding of doctrine uh, the people who were most passionate about God and it says here when they heard this they were glad the NIV says delighted they were delighted to kill an innocent man. Are you getting a sense of the darkness of the characters involved here? This is, this is real human drama on, a, on a, an extreme scale. And Jesus is aware of all this. And he has intentionally timed all of these things because the great first cause is that the Son of God must die for the sins of his people and the great second causes of the corruption of Judas's heart and the evilness of the Sanhedrin are all going to be used together to be able to accomplish that great first cause. They promised to give him money. Like I mentioned, it's 30 pieces of silver here. And uh, he uh, just try, trying to figure out what he can do about it. And he began seeking how to betray him. As one commentator said, Judas possessed icy resolve to his complete and insidious plan, looking for the prime opportunity. See, you didn't want to, you can't betray Jesus while he's surrounded by fans. <laughs> so he's trying to figure out a way he can get Jesus separate and hand him over. Uh, and of course, darkness would serve him well, wouldn't it? Because it's a dark plot. Now we see here the preparations for the Passover in verses 12 through uh, 16. Here's another indicator of the, the deity of Christ, of his foreknowledge of what's going on here. On the first day of the unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare 
for you to eat the Passover. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, prepared for us there. The disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover here. So again, give you the, the kind of the Old Testament background here to remind you of what we're supposed to do. The timing here, you got a time mark here. It's the first day of the unleavened bread when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed. Now, according to uh, Scripture, the Passover lamb is supposed to be sacrificed on the 14th, on the afternoon of the 14th of Nisan. But there were so many lambs sacrificed and so many pilgrims thronging to Jerusalem uh, we have some good rabbinical evidence that Passover lambs were actually sacrificed during a, a long period of time within those couple of days here. Josephus, the Roman general uh, that will rise to fame uh, 40 years later during the revolt against Rome, says that in the year 66 AD, the temple, uh, the temple, uh, they, at the temple they completed 255,600 lamb sacrifices. A quarter of a million lambs were sacrificed on the Passover. That ain't happening in one afternoon, right? They probably, you think, how, how long does it take you to get a Big Mac? You know, you imagine how long it would take to kill a quarter of a million lambs? So this was, this was an amazing industry in a sense. They're taking these lambs and they're sacrificing them and they're giving the lambs back and they're preparing them uh, to be eaten uh, that night here. So the disciples ask a, a, a simple question. It's the Passover. We're in Jerusalem. That's why we came. We've got to celebrate the Passover. You can only celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. So they ask, where do you want us to go? I mean, we're kind of running out of time here. We're not sure about the preparations. What do you want us to do there? But he gives them this kind of cryptic response here. He says he sent two of his disciples, which Luke 22 identifies as Peter and John, which we would expect, part of the inner circle. He says, go into the city and find a man carrying a pitcher of water and that kind of thing. It's interesting, as we look at this account, it sounds very similar to the account of, of where he was going to come in on the triumphant entry, doesn't he? You, you go in, you go to this certain village, and you find this uh, colt of a donkey who's never been ridden on, and you bring him, and when they inquire about what's going on, you tell them the master has need of it, and all those things happened here, and you got a similar situation here. You go there, and you, you find a man carrying water. Now, to, you're thinking, there, there are estimates of... 500,000 to 2 million people, depending on whose numbers you believe, in Jerusalem at this point in time. How in the, t- how in the world are you going to tell this guy carrying water? Well, here's the thing is men didn't carry water. water. That was considered woman's work. No offense. That's what it was considered, woman's work. Okay? Men didn't carry water. With two exceptions, a slave or, and some people have speculated uh, that, that this might kind of show... Uh, uh, Jesus' affinity towards the Essenes, an Essene. The Essenes were the famous ones that uh, settled in the Qumran community that left us the Dead Sea Scrolls. Some of you have been there. Uh, they didn't have women in their company, so if you don't have women, you, you carry the water yourself. Uh, uh, so anyway, they were to see this man. This would be an unusual sight. This man carrying water. They're going to follow him to this particular house here. Uh, it's possible that the house was near uh, the, where the Gidon Spring goes into Hezekiah's tunnel and brings water into Jerusalem here, uh, and they would follow him into the house. And then they're supposed to say, the teacher says, where's my guest room? Uh, it was the custom of the people in Jerusalem to set aside rooms for people, pilgrims to be able to uh, carry on the Passover here. 
And he goes, and they find this, uh, this guest room, this large upper room, all furnished. It looks just like the room uh, that, where the disciples met with the early church, right, doesn't it? Acts chapter 1. And some have speculated that was uh, Mary's uh, uh, room, who is the mother of John Mark, the disciple that writes this gospel. Some have gone so far as to say the man carrying water might have been John Mark. That's speculation. We don't know if that's true or not. But this room ends up evidently being the place, the, the, the home group, if you will, of the early church later on here. And I love it. It says they found it just as he had told them and they prepared the, the, the Passover. Again, this is a reminder. Jesus is not a victim here. I mean, in a sense, he is he's a victim of the evil, uh, evil hearts of men. But, but he, is, he is heading towards this. This is a deliberate plan. He knows what's going to happen. He foretold how this was going to happen. It should give us some confidence that this was part of Jesus' plan, which just shows his love for you all the more, doesn't it? Would you keep heading towards Jerusalem when you knew you were about to be nailed to a cross? I like what James Edwards says. The effect of both stories, that is the, uh, this story of finding the upper room and also the triumphant entry, is to show Jesus' knowledge and complete governance of events as to his hour, as the hour of death approaches. Jesus is not a tragic hero caught up in events beyond his control. Judas and others may act against him, but they do not act upon him. Amen. Our God reigns, and we don't always have to understand why he does certain things. But we can have confidence that the, the great first cause of everything is our loving God and a just God and uh, will cause all things to work together for good, even something as evil uh, as this. So you have this kind of cryptic response. Oh, where do we go to the Passover? Okay, go find this guy. He's carrying some water. You go up to the room. You tell him the, 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 the teacher needs this. Evidently, they already were following Jesus. They, they knew who the teacher was, that kind of thing. But there's probably a practical reason here. He was kind of showing the disciples, I'm in charge, a lesson they didn't forget. What? Think about this. What would have been the practical reason? Who is he instructing to do this? Peter and John, right, according to the synoptics. Who else is standing around? Well, you've got Matthew, right, and you've got uh, Nathaniel, and you've got Judas in that same group receiving those same instructions. So the cryptic response had a practical effect, too, or, or a practical uh, goal of not telling Judas where he was going to be so that Judas couldn't prematurely hand him over to the Sanhedrin. He wanted to have the Passover. He wanted to institute the Lord's Supper before all of those things happened and wanted to have a time with the, the Father uh, in the garden. So it was, uh, it was to sh- demonstrate his control of the situation, but also from a practical standpoint to keep Judas from having the information that he so desperately wanted at the time. Now we see the predic- prediction of betrayal, this uh, dramatic scene, uh, which is, again, uh, uh, even have a fuller account. We'll look at it. John in just a moment, but uh, picking up with verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is going is 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 to go just as it is written of him. 
But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man had he not been born. So this Passover celebration begins at sunset. It goes on to right before midnight. It's considered a, a night of watching for the Lord. Why? Well, because the original Passover was at night, right? The death angel passed over the houses of the, uh, of the captive Jews in Jerusalem, and uh, he would pass over the houses that had blood on the, on the, on the door, uh, door place. And uh, so there's, a, there's a, watch, a sober watching and expectation, and they're recounting this story, and they're thinking about that story as they take of this meal. And even the meal, the very food itself, reminds them of what's going on here. This is the, the holiest festival uh, in the Jewish year, uh, where they remember their past deliverance is as the eldest male in the family is to interpret the feast. The Passover liturgy consisted of uh, reciting or singing the Hallel Psalms, hence Psalms number 113 uh, and, uh, to 118. But the meal was divided into four parts. I mean, it was a, there was a liturgy to the, to the meal because it was uh, like our Lord's Supper. It was a symbolic meaning uh, as well here. Uh, and the first of all, it would start off with a blessing that was first pronounced by the family uh, head over the gathering. And then there would become a, a ceremonial washing of the hands to, 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 to demonstrate the cleansing of sin. You know what's kind of sad? If you, again, you put together the various gospel accounts here, it's probably during that time after the washing of the hands when you're realizing how sinful you are and how you're so in need of cleansing, that the, according to Luke 22, the disciples started arguing which one of them was the greatest. And what did Jesus do in response to that? He started washing their feet. And he said, you want to know greatness? I'm not going to stop at washing hands. I'm just going to wash your dirty feet. That's greatness, to be the servant of all. Then there's a response to a child's question. The child is supposed to ask why, and this would be a great honor in the family to be the selected child to ask that question. Why is this night different from the other nights? And then the father would recount uh, 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 the, uh, the words according to Deuteronomy about what the Passover meant. Then the father would pronounce a benediction over the various foods, and the various foods included unleavened bread, bread without leaven, which is symbolic, of course, of... Uh, of sin, and also they didn't have time uh, to, to, to wait for the bread to rise, so they had unleavened bread, bitter herbs to remind them of the bitter captivity, greens, stewed fruit, and roasted lamb. Uh, and then the fam- after all that was happened, the, the family guests were invited to eat, and they would eat and, and that sort of thing. So, and the way they would do this, as you probably know, is they would recline. They would sit on the floor. They would probably sit with one hand like this, and they would eat with the other hands in a large circle here. So they're literally laying next to each other, kind of like a big wheel perhaps, or, or a large square here. Uh, there were probably numbers of bowls, so you would have the stewed uh, fruits and stuff like that, and you would take your little bit of pita bread, and you would mix it up, and you would eat. So you would share a bowl. You know, there was, I'm sure there was a rule against double dipping. Uh, and you would share a bowl and everything. So, so this, this is significant. The one who is eating with me, I mean, that is a picture of intimacy, isn't it? I mean, you're sharing the, the stewed fruit with somebody next to you and everything. Well, that also says that Judas was real close to him, and they were sharing the same bowl. 
he who dips his bread in my same bowl is the one who's going to betray me. But they, they didn't get it. They, they didn't understand what it was happening. So uh, this is probably his announcement here that one's going to betray was probably during the meal. So you have this kind of celebratory mood here. The disciples are still thinking, Woo-hoo, we're coming into the kingdom and I'm going to be the prime minister and I'm going to be the head of the treasury. And I mean, they just still don't get it. They're, people are always thinking geopolitical Christianity. Uh, people are always thinking the kingdom of this earth. God is always teaching about the kingdom of heaven. And, and it's like we're disappointed in the kingdom of heaven. We've got to set something up on earth. And that's just not God's plan. It wasn't then, and it's not the plan today. All right? So they go through here, and uh, he talks about the one who's going to dip the bowl in him. John elaborates on this, this particular scene a little bit more in John 13. So Simon Peter gestured to John and said to him, Tell, uh, tell us who it is whom he's speaking. He, he, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? I mean, you could, they're literally touching each other. You know, John's leaning back and asking Jesus this question. That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. And when, he had sit, and when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. When, uh, after the morsel, Satan then entered him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said to him. For some were supposing because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy things that we need for the feast or else that he should be give some money to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Wow. You know, he said, whoever eats with me, I dip this with, is going to be the one. He takes the morsel, he gives it to Judas, he tells him, okay, go out and do what you're doing. And the disciples are thinking, well, he must be shopping. You know, I hesitate to make fun of them because over the years I have said and done so many stupid things in my life, I kind of can relate to what they're thinking here. But they just didn't get it. They get it later. They get it, you know, Holy Spirit comes and, and they get it later. They get it obviously because they're writing it now, right? But they just didn't get it. But part of it was this naivety they had that Judas was just one of them, was one of these great guys. And, and, and Messiah can't die. Even though he's told us time and time again he's going to die, he can't die. Oh, Jesus, he's always talking about dying. That's silly, Jesus. Well, we're going to remind him of that when we sit on our thrones next to him. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, you, 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 you read this and you want to start screaming at your Bible. Grab Judas <laughs> or something. No, you don't want to grab Judas. So here, this is, this is a, a, a doctrinally powerful tr- truth here, this, this statement. There's two sides of providence here. For the Son of Man is, uh, is to go just as it is written of him. Where was it written? Okay, they didn't have New Testament, right? Not talking about the Apocrypha right here. It's written in the Old Testament. So, for instance, Isaiah 52 and 53 looks like an eyewitness account of the crucifixion and the resurrection. The suffering servant account. Psalm 41, 9 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Psalm 55, For it is not my enemy who reproaches me, then I would bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself for him. Uh, But it is you, a man of my equal, my companion, my familiar friend, who had sweet fellowship, who walked together in the house of God in the throng. David's betrayal, 
for instance, from his son Absalom, is a, is a type of the betrayal that's going to occur uh, to Jesus. So you see God's predetermined plan. He wrote about this in the Old Testament that death was going to come to Jesus. He would be the suffering servant. He would even be betrayed. Then you have man's responsibility. For the Son of Man is to go uh, just as it's written, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for him if he had not been born. That word woe is a warning. It would be good for him if he had not been born because he's going to spend eternity in hell. And if you look at the medieval writers, they often would uh, describe hell and the very center, at the very bowels of hell and the very bottom part is Judas. He committed the most heinous of all sins by betraying uh, Jesus Christ. And yet, that betrayal was necessary to fulfill what God said. So God had this great first cause. I'm going to send my son, my perfect son. He's going to die for the sins of the people. And the second cause is going to be, it's going to come through the corrupt heart of evil Sanhedrin and an evil person who's going to betray him and through the hands of the Romans who are going to crucify him but he's not going to stay in the grave. That same God is working in your lives, folks. Everything that happens to you, to the smallest, smallest degree, is happening through the hands of a great first cause, our God, and coming to you as part of second causes, maybe by a million different hands. Who knows? But our faith is in that great first cause. Our God really will cause all things to work together for good, which was part of Todd Swathwood's testimony this morning. But it had to happen this way. Paul told the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. You know who else is the second cause here is the devil. And, you know, the devil entered into Judas and is thinking, let's just go kill that guy. Let's go turn that guy over, you know. And then Jesus rises from the grave. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Hadn't counted on that. He had the same Bible. He had maybe the same misunderstandings. So the devil plays into that. Makes this huge mistake because the risen Jesus is the thing that he should have feared the most. There's Old Testament counterparts to this, right? Remember the story of Joseph, the coat of many colors, Joseph, and his brothers, and that innocent man being betrayed and sent off to uh, uh, enslavement and rising up in Potiphar's household and then being uh, uh, Potiphar's wife, uh, having him thrown in jail, and then he having these visions and stuff like that to the point where he went from being a, a kidnapped slave in a prison to being prime minister of the most powerful nation on earth and being used by God to save his people through a devastating famine, right? And what was, what was Joseph's attitude the whole time? Well, you know, it closes when Genesis chapter uh, 50, verses 19 through 20. Do not be afraid, as he tells his brothers, for I am, uh, am I in God's place. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. Like R.C. Sproul said, Judas did exactly what Judas wanted to do, but God brought good out of evil, redemption out of treachery. So we see here in the story the account of the last Passover, the first Lord's Supper on the betrayal of Jesus, an account really of how God works everything out. He does everything according to his will and purpose, and he uses second causes like you and me and others and nature and everything else in order to do that. 
And we too often put our hope in the sep- or the blame or whatever on the second cause and we get all upset and we get all uptight about the second cause and we think about all he hasn't given us and all that kind of stuff and we forget he is overall and he loved us to the point of letting his son be betrayed into the hands of sinners to die for your sin. Take confidence in the providence of God. Father, we thank you for the truth of Scripture and uh, we, for- we ask forgiveness for the times we forget that truth. Lord, we, we are so much like the apostles, and frankly, sometimes even Judas. It's terrifying. But we thank you, God, that you never seem to grow impatient in teaching us the same lessons over and over and over again. But as we try, face the trials, the tribulations, the victories, the ecstasies, the wonders of this coming week, I pray, God, that we would just keep our eyes focused on you, the great first cause of everything, and just have a a holy confidence that our God reigns. In Christ's name.